And I'm going to have to, uh, I, I probably spent more time on that than I should have, so I will, I will try to go pretty briskly through the message as the Lord leads me. 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And we're going to start in this service. We're going to start in this service and uh, we'll begin in verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 14. And David was then in an hold, and the garrison of the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, Philistines, was then in Bethlehem. That's David's hometown. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well at Bethlehem, which is by the gate. And the three mighty men, note that, three mighty men, break through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. We're going to talk about David this morning, and we're going to talk about three mighty men. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd anoint me, help me to say the things that you'd want me to in the time frame that we've set apart. May your Holy Spirit work in hearts to be encouragement to those who have already served faithfully here at White Oak Baptist. And an encouragement as well to those who have become part of the number here, part of the congregation, part of the church family, who may not remember the memories because they were not part. But may they sense the history, sense the sacrifice, and choose to serve faithfully. Bless now, and if there's someone here who has not ever received Christ personally as Savior, not ever been saved, born again, May this be the morning that they hear the gospel and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. David is the first name, the only name that had been encountered so far in the reading of the text. You know that David was the king of Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Christ. You realize that David and the Lord Jesus Christ have some things in common. When a figure or an object reminds us of some of the qualities or characteristics or events in the life of Christ, we call that a type. A synonym might be a symbol. It's a reminder. And David and Christ had some things in common. First, they were both born in the same town. Of course, Christ being prophesied as being born in the city of David, Bethlehem. But they were both born in the same hometown, the very town where the Philistines are now in charge. Not only was he born in, in a town, but David was a shepherd. And in the Lord, in the Bible, we know that the Lord Jesus is called the Good Shepherd and the Great Shepherd. We know that Psalm 23, a wonderful chapter, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We know in John chapter 10 that the scripture says that uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. We're the sheep of his flock. And he's called us to receive Christ. And when we do that by faith, we become 
His children, not just His sheep. And we eternally have a home in heaven. But Jesus was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Both men were chosen as kings. Out of order or succession. David was not the son of the first king of Israel, Saul, but was chosen and appointed to be king. And Jesus is not of a kingly lineage as far as his genealogies, but he will return as king of kings and lord of lords. They were kings. Both were betrayed by someone very close to them. David, by his own son Absalom, rebelling and forcing David even to leave the capital, Jerusalem, and flee for his life. And Jesus, betrayed by the kiss of one of the men chosen to be his own apostle, Judas Iscariot. Both went down into a valley to face a formidable foe. David to face Goliath. And Jesus down into the valley of the shadow of death into the valley of death, to face death and face the devil and face the sin that he became for us. David left that valley a victor with many, many dozens and scores of women who would sing his praises about David killing his ten thousands. Jesus left the death of the grave and became the victor and conqueror over that death. And gives us the opportunity to receive Him as Savior. And in receiving Him, receive the gift of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So they have some similarities. In the section prior to the section I read in 2 Samuel 23, the three men mentioned in our reading portion, the three mighty men are named, identified, and described. And if David can be seen as a type or symbol of Christ, maybe we could learn something from those three men that would help us and that we could even apply to our lives as church members, our lives as Christians. So I'm going to explore those three men. The first one, we find his name in verse 8. Let's look there together. These be the names of the mighty mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, 2 Samuel 23, 8. Chief among the captains, the same was Adino, the Esnite. He lift up his spear against 800 whom he slew uh, slew at a time. So we have Adino, the the Esnite. And the word Adino, the name, you know, in the Scripture, names often have significance. And the meaning of that name, Adino's name, is slender as a spear. Slender as a spear. And we find that he lift up his spear. His weapon was a spear. And that he slew 800. The tip of the spear, the tip of the spear is a phrase sometimes used by Military strategists. The tip of the spear is the place where your infantry or your special ops. The tip of the spear is the place where they're going to pierce the defense of the enemy. Where they're going to press in and give a lethal blow. The first on the field. The first to engage. 
the first to be in jeopardy, the first to place their life on the line, the tip of the spear. A dino had the courage to engage the enemy in the initial assault, the first offensive. I would suggest that it takes a divinely conferred courage to advance into the unknown. Spear lowered for engagement. A dino had survived that glorious moment, a moment that I remind you had 800 to 1 odds. It mattered not because the scripture says that God is the one that gives the victory. He guaranteed the turn of the battle. What are the chances of survival of a young pastor in his early 30s in a socially liberal town with a majority of folks following one or form or another of works religion? What do we mean by works religion? Any religion that would teach that we can get to heaven or have eternal life by doing good works. The Bible says not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so our salvation is not from doing good works, but many of our friends and neighbors are misled and think maybe if there's a way to get to heaven, it's by giving money to the building fund. It's by helping the poor. It's by attending church every service without missing. It's by praying for the ministers day and by, by understanding the missionaries overseas. Not one thing I've mentioned is a bad thing. But they don't earn salvation. It can't be earned. It has to be received. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. can't be earned. It has to be received. So when you come to a city, when you come to a town, and so much of the population is involved, actively involved, in works-oriented religions, both Protestant and Catholic, as I mentioned earlier in the history when the first 17 places that you go say no, and several of them say no because you're a Baptist, we won't rent to you. When the huge percentage of conversations when going to a door end with a simple statement, I'm Catholic and I'm not interested, that's fact. I'm not finding fault. That's just fact. What are the chances of purchasing a building when land prices are soaring and buildings are precious? How can that happen? Well, it happens because we claim the building. Back in 1980, toward the end of the year, we thought we'd have to move out of that Connecticut Business Institute. And so one of the gentlemen, Al Bat and myself, we were coming to look at a piece of property that the town was selling and said maybe we could lease it if they can't sell it. And that piece of property was Putney Elementary School. Another group bought it. Elizabeth O'Hare Walsh School for the Autistic. We didn't get it. I thought we'd pray to miss. But in coming on this property and speaking with them, Al and I walked entirely around the building, 
barefoot. Say, so that's crazy. Well, there's some things in the Bible that Joshua walked and claimed. and We walked entirely around the building in our sock, sock feet, holding our shoes. I don't know what they thought about us. And we knelt down in the front and prayed and claimed that building right where the flagpole is now. I said, well, we prayed amiss. It went to somebody else. I'm young and inexperienced, and maybe that was, that was something that we didn't need to do. But I'm going to tell you, on the Sunday afternoon that this property came up for sale in, 19, uh, in, in about, what, 1999 or 98 or whenever it was, 88, yeah, thank you. Lynn knows. She's, she's got a sharp memory. She tells me my name from time to time. When it came up in the newspaper, I called the realtor that afternoon, and I was certain this is it. This is it. And it was. God did it. Listen, what are the chances of purchasing a building? The realtor said that the property was on the market for $950,000. And we said, ooh, no. We did have a building fund, but we knew how much, even with faith, how much we could afford. And it was $600,000. And that was a stretch. That took, that took several families guaranteeing the mortgage, putting their own houses on the line as equity. But the realtor said, I can't even take that offer to the bot seller. That's embarrassing. That's humiliating. That's, a, that's an insult. I can't do that. I said, well, by law, don't you have to take a legitimate offer? <sighs> well, I will, but you're not going to get a good answer. Okay, just take it. We didn't get any answer for about two weeks. And then my phone rang on a Saturday morning. And the realtor said, uh, uh, Reverend Brown, yeah. could you meet with the, the owner, uh, owner's representative of the of the parcel on Main Street, Putney. Could you meet with them in an hour or so? Yes. Why? Well, they want to talk to you. I got off the phone, turned to Lynn, and honestly said, we've just purchased a building. Now, we hadn't brought it before. The, the church had seen it. The church knew what we were doing. They had come through. They had they had a uh, couple times to go through on a Sunday afternoon. and But I just knew that was going to happen. And they sold it to us for... $600,000. Now, that's an amazing and huge amount of money for a small church. That tells me that the congregation was in on it. All in. The point of the spear is where you make the entry. The point of the spear, the tip of the spear is where you engage the enemy. The tip of the spear takes a certain kind of courage because no one's been there before. And the members at White Oak Baptist Church in 1988 were the tip of the spear. They went. They went out on a limb. They worked hard. And they saw God work. There was a second mighty man. In verse number 9 it says, And after him was Eleazar the son of Dodo the Aohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines that were there gathered together in battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. He arose and smote the Philistines with it, until his hand was weary and his hand clave under the sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned 
after him only to spoil. Two things I noted. I told you I'm looking for things that in uh, Eliezer's life and in his event, in his participation with those other two mighty men, that might remind us of some things. Two aspects jumped out to me when I prepared the message. First, notice that he kept fighting when the men of Israel had gone away. The scripture says in verse 9, the men of Israel were gone away. We don't know why. Were they asked to go somewhere else to prepare for battle or to, to scope out another situation? We don't know. Were they just afraid and they fled the battlefield? We don't know. Were the, were the, did they lose their confidence in David and wonder why they were at war with the Philistines? We don't know. But we do know this. They weren't there. The Bible doesn't record the reason, but it doesn't matter. Eleazar was not going to surrender to the enemy, period. I'm going to tell you this morning, and you can trust me or not, but I'm going to tell you this morning that if we took our circles, independent fundamental Baptist churches, Baptists because we believe that the Scriptures are inspired of God, because we believe that people are saved by grace, and the name Baptist because we believe that God has commanded that all who come to Christ by faith and get saved should be baptized by immersion. And there are some other reasons that we might call ourselves Baptists, some distinctives. But in Baptist circles today, some things are happening. I had a conversation, or I listened and was part of a conversation just this week, with a pastor from Massachusetts who came to New England Baptist College, where I, I'm the administrator. And with my pastor, Dr. Jim Townsley, we talked. And in the vicinity of his church, if he were to, to map out the closest churches to him in the greater Boston area, there were seven churches, two of which have closed or are about to close. One's closed, one's about to close. Two out of seven. There are reasons for that, I'm sure. I'm not judging them. But I'm going to tell you something. White Oak Baptist Church has a good reputation. Pastor Peslak has a good reputation. Pastor Lejeune has a good reputation. The congregation has a good reputation. Other churches look at and to this church. And if it's only a, if they can do it, we can too. That's a good thing. But there are churches that used to be strong and had solid preaching that are being discouraged. Discouraged by the world, discouraged by the community, discouraged by the rampant immorality in America, discouraged by mockery of the Bible, discouraged in a lot of ways. The men of Israel had left the field. But Eleazar said, no, I'm staying. I'm going to fight until the battle is one. Some people are giving in on some of the specific issues. If we go past the independent Baptist movement and we say those preaching the gospel, evangelicals, and we're glad for anybody that preaches the gospel, but if we speak of them, we're seeing a, a desire to compromise, a desire that says, listen, there are a lot of folks that don't believe the things we believe, so how can we find, how can we go halfway? Well, I'm sorry, I can't go halfway on whether there's a heaven or a hell. The Bible says there's both. People that receive Christ by the grace of God through faith in Him are given a home in heaven. Folks that deny Christ and have not received Him 
have an eternity of condemnation ahead. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Luke recorded in Acts, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. So salvation is still of Christ. And if we yield that and say, well, as long as you're good, as long as you're nice, as long as you go to church, as long as you believe in something, you're okay. A book was written three decades ago. I'm okay, you're okay. It wasn't okay then, it's not okay now. The Bible doesn't say that. And so there are some trying to compromise. Perhaps it's on creation. Well, you know, evolution is proven. It's not. Evolution is proven, and so the Bible must be wrong. And so, uh, but we, we're, we're people of faith. Well, let me ask this question. If there's no creation, there's no Adam and no Eve, then Adam and Eve could not have fallen in sin. If Adam and Eve did not exist and did not fall in sin, then we cannot have the nature of Adam to be sinners. If we don't have the nature of Adam to be sinners, if we're good people from birth on, then we don't need a Savior. See what I'm saying? So if you're halfway there, well, the Bible's true in spiritual terms, but it's not true in scientific and historical terms, then where is it true? If Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are not true, then why would we say that John 3.16 is? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. How can I believe that for sure if I can't believe the first three chapters of the book? If I can't believe in Adam and Eve, how can I believe in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10? If thou shalt believe with thine heart and confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. How can I believe that? I left out part of it, that God hath raised him from the dead. But how can we believe Romans 10.9 if we can't believe Genesis? And so, when churches go that way, it isn't long that they go all the way. And the church I grew up in as a child had Baptist on the front. But they said the purpose in life is to leave the planet better than you found it. Because believe me, a year after you're dead, your bones are moldering in the ground because the grave is the end. That was a Baptist church. When you give up creation and accept evolution, when you give up the true nature of man is is that of a sinner who needs to repent and find Christ, and God in his mercy will forgive us. When you abandon that and go to everybody's fine, and if there is a heaven, maybe we'll all go there then you've left the field of battle. Eleazar said, no, I'm taking a stand. We won't tailor the message to highlight wonderful blessings and ignore the truth that man is accountable to God. We won't talk just about niceness, but we need to talk about the nature of man, which until we're recreated, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's a wonderful, hopeful promise. But if we're not in Christ and we haven't received Christ, the promise isn't ours yet. We can't just talk about how wonderful it is to be a child of God without being adopted into his family by faith. Eleazar stood his ground. The third person, oh, one other note. Notice this phrase, and I'll I'll haste here. Notice the phrase that says, 
in uh, uh, verse number 10, it says, He smote the Philistines and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clave to the sword. Well, as soon as I say sword, a number of folks in this room who've been Christians for a while, a number of folks in this room recognize, wait a minute, sword also relates to something else. And the sword is the word of God. Eleazar physically claved to the sword. I'm reading and told that by experiences of others that in hand-to-hand combat, combat, when you have to hold the weapon, you can be so weary and yet your muscles just keep the grip. And at the end of the battle, sometimes other soldiers had to pry their hands off the weapon. Well, if the sword might represent or remind us of the Word of God, we hold to the Word of God no matter what anyone does to take it away from us. Now, in this room, we may have folks of various backgrounds, and that's a wonderful thing. The body of Christ is composed of people that are tall and short, people that are bald and and have a full head of hair, people that are light, people that are dark, people that speak with accents and languages of other places, people with other cultures, but they've all come with one thing. Acts says we're of one blood, and we've all come to Christ, and we're in one body. In this particular building right now, you may have come from another place, and your natural tongue, growing up as a baby, being taught by mom and dad and family, your natural tongue was not English. That's fine. Mine happened to be English. But the common bond we have, there may be many that speak other languages here. I lost track of how many languages Pierre can interpret. So, okay, But, but, but we may have that. But the common language for this room is, is English today. I'm speaking in English. You're, you're understanding English. And for those of us who can understand English, the King James Bible is the preserved Word of God for English-speaking people. He has preserved his Greek New Testament, the Textus Receptus. He's preserved his his Hebrew Old Testament, the Masoretic Text. And from that, the King James was translated and has endured the ages and has shown its power. We won't let go. Others can say, well, it isn't so easy to read, really. How much of it have you read? Well, that's beyond the, no, no, no. You know, I don't think accounting textbooks are too easy to read. But as you read them for a while, you start to understand them. How many like math textbooks? Anybody? What we have here is a textbook of life. Read it and understand it. And yet the world finds it more and more the object of scorn. Eleazar wouldn't let loose. And I trust that White Oak won't let loose. When the battle rages and others depart, hold on to the King James Bible. The last person, the third person and last, verse 11, And after him was Shema, the son of Aji, the Herarite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where the piece of ground full uh, where was a piece of ground full of lentils, and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great 
victory. We have that last person, Shema. How odd. His name means desolation. I don't know about you, but most of us would like a name that has a very positive slant, you know. Some of you young ladies, uh, there might be a, a hope or a faith or a grace, some Bible words, that's great, but at least, uh, at least your name has some positive connotation. How would you like to be named Desolation? <laughs> oh, here comes Desolation. He walks in the room and the lights go down, you know. Desolation. What? What could, now I don't believe anything's in the Bible by accident. I don't think, I think God uses names and such uh, to inform us. So I think it's actually part of the lesson. Maybe it's a reminder that once we have secured the field, this field was already bringing forth a crop of lentils. Once we've secured a field, having planted and watered and gained the harvest, the future is not secured without a determination, a campaign, a battle strategy to keep fighting to maintain it. Desolation. Desolation comes unless there is an intense and conscious desire to defend. The lesson of Shema is to urge us at White Oak Baptist Church to prepare to defend the fields already cleared, planted, and harvesting. Say, well, Pastor Brown, you came and you told us about the past, and that's wonderful. I like the church now. I like Pastor and Mrs. Lejeune, and I like uh, some other church members that I've met. And, you know, we enjoy coming. We're getting to serve the Lord a little. I think one must understand this church was on the point of the spear. By God's grace, not by my choice, not by, by God's grace. And that this church has stood defending the Word of God and the Gospel of Grace. For 37 years. But I cannot guarantee, Pastor Lejeune cannot guarantee, that it will stand in the distant future unless every member determines to defend the field, to defend the harvest, to defend the crop. And what has to be done in that field to defend it so that the weeds and the and the uh, and and all the, the the blight that can come, well, it has to be cultivated. It has to be reseeded. It has to be rewatered. It has to grow again, over and over and over again. And all that time, Shema has to stand. I'm using his name as a symbol now, but you are Shema. Pastor Lejeune and Angela are Shema. All that are here, old and young, by prayer, by participation, by commitment, by embracing new things that must be done, by holding to the things fast and stern that are right, that's the only way to hold the field. In the first service, I joked about the 60-year anniversary. That's 23 away. And I said, I doubt whether I'm going to be preaching in that anniversary service. Well, someone, two people this told, this told me this morning that their parents are over 100 years old. 
So maybe you will wheel me in and I will preach. I don't know if I was asked. But I don't know what the church will be like because there's no promise. But I can say this. If you guard the field, whether you are here or on the other side in heaven, on that 60th birthday, the field will still be harvesting. If we don't, we have no idea, but desolation is the reminder. I think back, and I'll close, I think back in those early days. The early team, some of them have gone on before us. Some to heaven, some moving. The Pecks, the Carfagnas, the Barkers, the Williams, the Bedners, the Bats and the Gophors and the Pilates and the Oats and the Logans, those families sacrificed greatly. And they were blessed. And I'm sure they don't regret it. But they're gone. Audrey's still with us. Audrey Newcomb, one of our first uh, members. The Chagrues, I worked with John Chagru at Bridgeport Machines in 1981. They've been around for a while. Good to see he and uh, Kristen and, and Carla and such today. The Daltons, Pam is still here. She was one of those early kids that was brought to church. Spieszewskis and the Barones and the Owens. Some of you remember the first project and the second. I've got that. But there are other names I don't know. There are faces here I don't know. I know Rachel and I know Michael because they graduated from our college. And I'm pleased with them. They're, they're a wonderful couple. But there are other faces I don't know. But the goal is the same. Committed to the gospel. Willing to serve. Recognizing that what has been accomplished is not because of our own ingenuity or effort. It's completely because we let God wield the spear, wield the sword, go into the battle, and use us as his instruments, his soldiers. Are you willing to be a soldier? There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of enjoyment. But to really be a soldier... There's a lot of commitment. Are you ready? Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach.